So you may have heard about the interesting new motorcycles that were unveiled at the recent motorcycle shows. There has been some new additions to the Adventure Motorcycle lineup for new motorcycles, and strangely enough, a number of those have been small displacement bikes designed for us, Adventure Motorcyclists. So what's happening here? I mean, we've all watched the iconic Adventure Motorcycles get larger and larger displacements, as if each manufacturer was racing to see who would produce the largest displacement monster Adventure Motorcycle. But... Like a flock of starlings sweeping waves through the sky, it seems the manufacturers have, all at once, in unison, stopped flying in one direction and headed off in another. So is that it? Are we heading off in a new direction now towards smaller adventure bikes? Is the race on to see whom will develop the smallest displacement adventure bike suitable for world travel? Well, coming up, we're going to have Carl Parker, the publisher of ADV Moto Magazine. We're going to have Austin Vince, filmmaker and small displacement travel enthusiast. And we're going to talk about tiny adventure bikes, in particular, the new ones, and what does it mean, if anything, to our market. We're also going to have a great story from Graham Field as he attempts to visit Mosul in Iraq. And you do not want to miss that story. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course... Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Dustin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregor W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tax. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hi, I'm Carl Parker from Edivamoto Magazine, and you're listening to Adventure Writer Radio. Each year at the EICMA Motorcycle Show in Milan, Italy, the manufacturers unveil new products, concept bikes, and more. The aftermarket industry is there too with parts, accessories, clothing, and everything else motorcycle. It's the place for big companies to be seen, to gain attention, to showcase new stuff. 
But this year, the news from the Milan Motorcycle Show that interests us most are those new adventure bikes, particularly small displacement bikes. It's been building for a few years now, a number of years really. The iconic adventure motorcycle is a large displacement, powerful machine with loads of extra bits, uh, electronics and wizardry that helps propel them into superstars. Okay, maybe that's a little over the top, but you know what I'm saying. The displacements have risen, the marketing hype says bigger is better, and off we went. The large bikes have many advantages. They can cruise the highway nicely, they can be comfortable, they carry a pillion without slowing down. But man, when they flop on their side, it can be like lifting a fallen apartment building. Now, if you were new to adventure motorcycling and you just did a quick trip to the dealership, maybe picked up a magazine, you'd likely walk away thinking that the ultimate adventure bike is big, powerful, and imposing. Well, that's not what everybody thinks. Not everybody believes that you need large displacement for a motorcycle for adventure. In fact, there's some that are adamant that small bikes are actually better for adventure. And I guess you can't argue that a lighter bike is easier to manage, especially off-road, and definitely easier to pick up. But the jury's still out. People have their opinions one way or another. Well, our question is, is the adventure motorcycle market changing? I mean, what does it mean when in the one year you have all these manufacturers coming out with small adventure bikes, these new introductions? Carl Parker is the publisher of ADV Moto Magazine. Carl, thanks for coming on the show today. You're very welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me on. The buzz from the big motorcycle shows this season has been a lot about small motorcycles, particularly adventure bikes. BMW has unveiled this this G310 GS and Honda, the CRF250 Rally. It appears that they're opening up a new segment, or at least they're recognizing a new segment for smaller motorcycles. Now, over the years, we've seen the, the big adventure bikes sort of dominate the market, becoming deserved or not, sort of a, um, a poster child, I guess, for what a real adventure motorcycle is. I mean, if, if you're new to the adventure motorcycle market, you probably think that the best bike for your round-the-world trip, whatever trip you're doing, is the biggest, baddest bike on the market. So why all the attention on small bikes now? What are the manufacturers saying to us? Are they saying that, that bigger isn't better? Um, I don't necessarily think that they're saying that bigger isn't better. I think what it is is bikes like bags or cameras or any other machine, you know, they, they all have pros and cons. So there's no one bike that fits uh, everything that you may necessarily want to do. So, for example, um, if you're traveling long distances, mostly highway or some fairly easy dirt or gravel roads, larger bikes uh, with a lot of power are perfectly fine. You can carry more gear. You can carry an extra person. Whereas if you're on things that are more technical, you know, you're not really looking at extended periods of time on the road. So you don't need to carry as much luggage, supply, water, all that kind of thing. Smaller bikes are, are, are fine, too. And they're also easier to pick up, so on and so forth. But... You know, we, we each have to, to decide what is best for us as, as our riders and what type of riding that we want to do. And many of us have multiple bikes, big ones, small ones, street dirt, whatever have you. But I think what they're going after with the new smaller bikes that have been introduced, and there are four that were just introduced this year, right? So we have the 310 by BMW, the CRF 250L Rally. Um, which I think is just the CRF250 Rally in Canada. They keep the L for some reason in, in the U.S. Then we have the Kawasaki Versus 300, which is one I'm uh, particularly excited about. 
Uh, I'm kind of a fan of the Versus platform. And then there was one that was also announced recently in Europe, which we did not see here this year uh, in North America, and that was the V-Strom 250 by Suzuki. So there's four new 250 to 300 cc class bikes out this year and largely from what i can tell is uh, the manufacturers are going after new riders we were at the global honda rebel launch uh, over there in long beach uh, during the ims show and um, one of the stats that they shared with us was that uh, the millennials as a market now outnumber the baby boomers and uh, for these bikes to be coming out now, we have to keep in mind that this must have been in the works four to five years ago. So the BMW 310 that we saw just recently in the past couple of weeks, they actually started on that five years ago. And it's easy for a lot of us to forget that there's a natural lag there. And of course, it frustrates everybody. We say, well, you know, uh, why can't they bring out the bike that I want? It's because they, they don't know what you want until right now. You're not going to see that until several years, years It must be later. frustrating for on their end as well because they're seeing all this talk. I mean, we've seen it over the years, all this talk about small bikes and there should be a small bike and why is nobody here? And they're sort of sitting on their fingers because they can't say anything. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, but this is the nature of the industry, you know, from the industry side. So it's a gamble for all of them in terms of what they make and what they don't make. But... I think that by and large, the big emphasis is just on newer riders. Whether or not it's millennials, it doesn't really matter. Um, that it's just newer riders. So the, the merits are you have bikes that are inexpensive, but they still look cool and modern. You know, you have bikes that are cost efficient to run and and live with every day. You know, smaller bikes, single cylinders, parallel twins. You get a lot less wear and tear on everything from chains to tires. Um, the other thing is having bikes that are generally lighter, you know, and less intimidating. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, the, the idea even for some experienced off-road riders of picking up a 700-pound loaded bike in dirt or sand or mud is, is, is a serious turnoff, especially if you're by yourself. You, you know, like if you're a solo rider, that's, I mean, if you're riding with four or five guys or whatever, that's different. There's usually help around, but if you're not riding with a group. Uh, having a lighter bike has has even more merits. And then also uh, to have bikes that are not as tall. And that's also very important. A lot of the larger bikes are kind of like sitting on horses. You know, so unless you have, let's say, a 31 to 32 inch inseam, you know, and even that is short on some dirt bikes, um, you know, it would be a confidence problem to just kind of swing your leg over it and be like, well, this is already so high. I don't know if I want to ride this in the street. But then you put it on, you know, on, on any kind of off-road or gravel road kind of condition where, you know, the surface underneath your feet is not even or it's not, or it's not really hard, it's loose or it's slippery or what have you. And again, all of these things can turn off new, young, inexperienced riders uh, or, or riders with certain types of physique. So I think that's largely where they're going. The big bikes have already been developed. We have a full range of BMWs. BMW just brought out more larger bikes at the same time. KTM has a lot of large bikes. Honda just brought out their Africa Twin 1000. Triumph has 800s. You know, so, you know, the big bikes are there. Um, well, what was missing was this, was this small displacement, which also uh, won't have more sales potential here, but also just around the world as a whole. Most people don't actually understand that most of the two-wheel vehicles on this planet aren't even 150 cc's. And they do a tremendous amount of work 
and and, and they are utilized pretty much 110 percent. You told me before you've seen this, you know, the small bike movement going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. Do you see this, though, as far as the manufacturers go, them bringing it out, all of them in one year? And certainly they didn't coordinate this amongst each other. This has been something that maybe has matured on its own in different places. And it's sort of come together now. Is this going to change Adventure Motorcycle? Are we going to see less of the big bikes? Um no, I don't think we'll see less big bikes. I think that we are going to fundamentally see more of all of the bikes. Because if the idea is to get into biking in general and to encourage and grow new riders, you know, I mean, like, as a new rider, sure, you'll start with a 250 or 300. But at some time, you want to go to a 450, 650. 1,000, 1,200, whatever. I mean, it's all just part of the natural conveyor belt of getting people into a product at an entry-level price and then moving that up. So why you didn't know? they so, have those out before? Why Why now? Why weren't they out four years ago? Well, I mean, we've always had small bikes that have been available on the market, but they just weren't fresh. You know, we've always had the KLX 250. Yamaha has the uh, WR250R, you know, which, which a lot of people love. That's a great bike to ride on both street and in the trails too as well. So it's not that we haven't had any options there, but the problem with them has been, just like some of the mid-sized bikes too as well, is that they've just been sitting on the platforms for too long. You know, I mean, we're talking 10, 15 plus year old platforms that had fundamentally gone unchanged. And the question is, if you're a new rider, are you going to get excited about that? But I think that Go back to your original question. Having the emphasis on smaller bikes does, does not mean anyone is going to take away anybody's larger bikes. All it means is that there's going to be more people and more variety, and eventually more people will buy larger bikes once they kind of get into their you know, shoes and they and, and then they kind of get them worn in on small bikes, and they're almost naturally, you know, they're going to graduate up. It's it's very normal. So I don't think it's going to take away anything from anyone. I think it's a lovely addition to the industry as a whole. And I think everybody should be looking forward to it. Even the guys that are, to be honest, you know, big displacement biased, you know, and that's, and that's something that we see too. And it's kind of, kind of curious. We see it on Facebook a lot. Uh, Someone announces news on a 250 or 300 and it's instantly just pooped on because it's not 800 CC or something like that or more or a liter or 1200 and, um, you know, I don't really understand why it's taken personally because there's a small bike that's just being announced. You know, uh, not everybody has to ride it if they don't want to. Um, but it's actually ultimately better uh, for everybody. Big bikes, medium bikes, small bikes. It's better for everybody just to have more riders. And I think that that's what, I mean, in a nutshell, this new introduction to smaller bikes is just about getting more riders. Not only in uh, North America, but just around the world. And the new, exciting, affordable platforms to get everyone into motorcycling. Everybody should be happy from uh, whatever level fanboys to the parts and accessories guys to the service guys. More riders generally is better for everybody all down the line. So with the new bikes that have been announced, the, the BMW, uh, the Kawasaki, the Honda, what should we be excited about? Well, you know, I mean, it's all taste and tasting. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh you know, uh, some people are going to love the BMW simply because they're, they're BMWs and or they love the styling. Um, the CRF250L 
is great because it's a or the rally, uh, although just the regular plain L is cool too. That also received a couple updates, but that's great because that's a that's a real twenty one eighteen, you know, wheeled. Out out of all of them, it's really the more I would say off road capable. Uh, the the BMW I believe was a nineteen seventeen, uh, and that's cast wheels. They may do spoke wheels on that. I don't know. The V-Strom 250, if I recall, I haven't seen one in person, so it's just off of the memory of what I saw from a uh, from a press shot. Uh, that's also looks like a 1719, um, but the Versus is a 1917, which will keep the saddle heights low, which is good. And at least it is a spoked wheel, so it's not a cast wheel on that. And uh, I'd say probably out of all of them, but you know I'm kind of biased to it. I would say. Since they're all at around the same price range, which is in the mid to upper 5,000s, for the money, just in terms of the features for what you get, I would probably say the Versus, largely because it has some cool features in it, like it comes with a slipper clutch. But uh, more importantly, uh, and of course the spoke wheels and stuff, but more importantly, and some folks may like this more than others uh, or see it as more important than others, but it comes with a four and a half gallon gas tank, which is great. Uh, I think that uh, all of the others uh, don't don't even breach through around three to three and a half or something. I think the new CRF rally, I think that has a slightly larger tank, but I think that that doesn't break three and a half gallons. Are they marketing the Versus as an adventure bike? That's a good question. You know, um, a lot of these bikes actually haven't even really hit showroom floors or anything yet. So I would bet that they would put it out as an adventure bike especially with a 19-inch front wheel. So, um, you know, the Versus itself has a history. It was the KLE 500, which we never saw in the United States. And the KLE 500 was a 19, uh, or was it may have even been a 21, 17 uh, front wheel, but it was based off of the Ninja 500 motor. But it was an enduro bike, so it had that, that long kind of benchy seat, it had a large tank that came down over the engine sides, um, long travel, you know, like suspension, and I think it even had snorkels, which is really cool. But that never came here, and that was the KLE line. So the 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 the, the current versus is the KLE 650, and what they did was they made the change that Triumph made when they changed their Tiger from a 1917 to a 1717, right? So Triumph changed their Tiger 1917 to, to the 1717 street oriented when they went to the 1050. So I think Kawasaki kind of followed more along in that line and then they made it street. But when the Versus 650 was announced in North America in around 2008, they were marketing it as a dual sport on their website, which I think initially was incorrect. Um, it's a street bike with longer suspension. And now I call that category of bike super standards. It's the best way that I could do it. It's basically a a bike that is street oriented, but it's but it has maybe um, a slightly taller suspension and maybe more luggage capacity, you know, so on and so forth, longer range, whatever have you. So my guess is for the Versus 300, it will be marketed as an adventure bike, um, if not dual sport. And certainly some of the manufacturers, I don't even think necessarily call it adventure as a category because the word adventure itself is hard to categorize as a bike it's like if you throw one bike into an adventure category what does that really mean you know and we've had previous talks about 
what really makes the adventure? Is it the bike or is it the rider? You know, from ADV Moto's point of view, is it's the rider. So <laughs> there are some companies that, that I think have just been wanting to call them dual sport bikes and, and, and so on and so forth. You know, but that's just really how they're going to badge and label it. But I don't think we'll see it uh, on the website next to the Ninja 300. Well, there's no doubt it's an exciting time for us as far as for adventure motorcycling. It's great to see these new options in the lower end of at least the CC spectrum. Carl, great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for coming on and talking about new bikes. Thanks very much, Jim, for having me on again and uh, putting on this great show for everybody. Carl Parker is a publisher of ADV Moto Magazine. If you haven't seen that magazine, you should definitely check it out. AdventureMotorcycle.com is the website. We're going to take a one-minute break, but we're going to be right back with Austin Vince. IMS Products is well-established in the off-road racing scene. And, you know, some of the best products you can find have been developed from the racing scene. That's where the R&D comes from, and this is certainly the case with IMS. This is one of the reasons that manufacturers get into sponsoring racing. Of, of course, they get some exposure there, but they also get a chance to test and refine their products in a real hardcore environment, the most extreme environment. So if you can build something to be successful in racing, then you can put it on the consumer market with 100% confidence. IMS now makes products for adventure motorcyclists like us, like shifters and foot pegs. And one of the foot pegs that I want you to have a look at is the ADV2 peg. This peg goes against conventional thinking for foot pegs. People who've ridden with them absolutely love them. There's been some real converts. Scott had told me a story about someone who came along and basically laughed at the pegs when they saw them. Then they took them and tried them, and they were completely blown away. I mean, now they're recommending them to all their friends. Drop by their website, imsproducts.com, www.imsproducts.com. Have a look at their foot pegs. Click on the ADV2 pegs. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Austin Vince is well known in the adventure motorcycle community for things like his films, Mondo Enduro, Mondo Sahara, as well as promoting the use of small displacement bikes for adventure travel. Austin took a break from the Honda booth at the Motorcycle Live show in the UK to talk bikes. Woo! That's me trying to be North American. <laughs> I don't know as I don't know as you really pulled it off, but where are you right now? Um, I'm in a hotel room, not because my wife kicked me out, but because I'm appearing on the Honda stand at the uh, an event called Motorcycle Live, which is the National Exhibition Centre known as the NC in Birmingham in the middle of England. And in the UK, this is our biggest motorcycle trade fair of the year. 100,000 people come through the doors, which um, by our standards is a big deal. It's packed for nine days, back to back. Everyone's there, every manufacturer. A lot of effort goes into it. I mean, a lot of expenditure. At most, almost every stand is a big deal. And uh, it's a huge treat to be part of it it's exhausting but it's where it's at it is ground zero for the next uh, eight days nine days long that is a long show it's the british way you north americans will of course catch up eventually <laughs> yeah because what you get here is a weekend that's all you get this sort of throws me off when i see the posts on facebook and they're talking about motorcycle live still i'm saying what are you still doing there it's wednesday i mean the weekend's gone by well it takes that long to process the public they used to do it as a three-day event but people stopped going because it was just too rammed. Mm. So they had to extend it. It's bad for the exhibitors. It's more stressful and expensive for the exhibitors. But it, I think it's a decision uh, motivated by the public's well-being. Which is great for us motorcyclists all around. Yeah, yeah. It's like laying on extra trains during peak time. Mm. 
So, well, you're you're down at the show. You're there at the Honda stand. You know all about all the new bikes that have been introduced. And when I say new bikes, I'm I'm referring to the new smaller CC adventure bikes. Yeah. Now seems like something spectacular has just happened this year. Of course, these manufacturers have been working on it for a while, but regardless, the fact is that the, the, the uh, public is just seeing these m- small adventure bikes now, this year, at these shows. None of this is new to you as far as small adventure bikes, because you've been extolling the virtues of small CC bikes for adventure travel for a long time now. What do you think that the, um, the, the small adventure bike segment is, is doing right now? What do you think is happening here? Well, the first thing I'd have to say is that uh, I don't think anybody, from where, I, from where I'm looking, I don't think anybody is selling or marketing or extolling the idea of small adventure bikes. They're just selling you the same small bike that they've been selling you for the last 10 or 15 years. What's the, the, the revolution, the, the change in the tide, is not happening at a manufacturer level, it's happening at, at a consumer level with a little bit of notice being taken by the motorcycle press. Consumers are now ignoring the manufacturers and the motorcycle press, who for the last 10 years have been telling them that if they want an adventure, they can only do it on a bike of a bare minimum of 600cc. And then if you're serious about your adventure, then you have a 1,000cc bike or more. The, um, it's, a, it's a proper grassroots rejection of that thinking. And people are sort of kind of like snapping out of it, are going to buy a 250 and 350 cc trail bikes, or as you might call it in North America, dual sport bikes, which loosely speaking have been available the whole time since long before anybody was talking about adventure motorcycling and are still available now. And they're picking up those trail bikes and using them for the, for the sort of like the one thing that, are, that they're obviously perfectly designed for, which is long-distance adventure motorcycling. The manufacturers are, loosely speaking, in my opinion, relatively, you know, completely out of touch. Not out of touch with the market, but they're certainly out of touch with actual adventure motorcycling. What's happening is that the, the elements for the public, not everyone, it's not a, it is not a true sea change, but there's definitely uh, geese within the flock who are turning around and flying back the other way towards the smaller bikes. Those smaller bikes are not new inventions. They're not new bikes that have been developed as a result of uh, audience participation or, or clamoring from the public. They're just the same old, same old dual sport bikes that all the major manufacturers have been manufacturing for the, for the last 20 years. Now, admittedly, if you're trying for BMW, for example, they don't make trail bikes. So they're losing business, you know, as far as I can see. If I had a nickel for everybody that's come up to me on the stand this week, in the last five days, and said, I used to own a KTM 990. I used to own a 1100GS. It's just no use to me as a a basic off-road motorcycle. Maybe they're a small person. Maybe they're not an expert rider. Basically, they're normal people who've got absolutely competent road bike skills. But when it comes to doing some crazy dirt or something fruity, something, something sexy off-road, they're massively overbiked. And so they're saying, actually, I'd rather go maybe 15 miles an hour slower on the freeway and give myself a 250 trail bike 
or a dual sport bike, and then there's nothing I can't do. So you've been saying this for many years now, telling people that they're probably better off to go with a smaller bike. Why? What, what is it? I mean, aside from what you just said, sort of expand on that. What is it that makes the small bike so much more suitable in your mind than a large bike for round the world travel or, or even half the world travel, whatever? Well, this is, a, this is a crucial thing. I have absolutely not been telling people they'd be better off with a smaller bike. What I have been telling people is an incredibly subtle semantic difference, but to me it's all the difference. That don't, what I've been saying to people is don't fixate on what the press and the industry has been telling you for the last 10 years. That if you want an adventure, you need to buy a bike from their adventure range. That's the heresy that I peddle is actually, I think you'll have a first class adventure on a bike that maybe that manufacturer doesn't even sell. On a bike that, uh, uh, if you take, um, uh, I don't know, like, like Suzuki, their big V-Strom, that was their official adventure bike. If you went into a Suzuki dealer in the UK and said, I want to go on an adventure, I've got the money, I've got the time, I just need the bike, I want an adventure bike, they wouldn't let you leave till they'd sold you a V-Strom. You know, which is massive. And that's been my little kind of small voice in the corner saying, wait a minute, folks, you know, uh, there's another way. And I think the reason that my little appeal from the shadows has been valid is that there are just too many people who over the last eight, 10 years have bought these huge bikes because they were told to. They, they had the word adventure in their name. They were on the adventure page of the manufacturer's website. They were reviewed in a motorcycle magazine article called This Year's 10 Best Adventure Bikes. And so it goes on. And then they buy this bike, and then they find that they've got themselves a truly massive machine with an unbelievable amount of power that can only really either get you killed or have the license revoked. Certainly if you're me, I mean, I couldn't possibly have a big bike like that without eventually being in a lot of trouble with the police. And... Then they want to go and do their, their Trans-America Trail or they don't want to do a backcountry discovery route, you know, uh, or they want to go out to Mexico or something. And suddenly they find that the bike is controlling them and what they can do. They're not controlling the bike. Now, obviously on tarmac they can, but, but even so much as turning it around on a rough trail, you know, a big adventure bike with a small or normal, myself, a normal size 5 foot 10 person on it, that requires a three-point turn, not a quick nip round, which you can get with a small, smaller bike. So, yeah, that's what's happening, definitely. I mean, it's, it, it's, this is a fact uh, now in Europe, and certainly in Britain. The, the wheel is turning, and the industry have it their own way um, for, for a substantial amount of time. But, you, you know, you can, it was a question of them, the industry being deceptive or that. The industry thought they were responding to a, to, a, to a need, to a market. So they created these giant bikes that were totally competent and capable off-road. The GS, the 990, the, you know, the, the 1150 KTMs, the, all the big Triumph stuff, all that massive machinery is absolutely, totally at home in relatively tough off-road scenarios. From where I'm standing, all the people I meet, and I meet hundreds of them, 
Uh, they're not. They're not good enough riders. And I'm myself. I give myself that. I'm not a good enough rider to manoeuvre a quarter of a ton bike on difficult mountain trails. Some people could do that. I know. I could start reading out the names of people who who can do that, but I can't. And I'm not alone. So, the way to it's like that thing where if you ever play a musical instrument and you've got like a really crappy old piano at home, your grandfather left your family, and there it is, and it's plinky plonk plonk. And then you go to a fancy reception hall, a recital hall, and you start playing the piano there, and then it's a, it's a you know it's a it's a fifty thousand dollar Steinway on the stage, and you're on the stage, and you start playing. Immediately, you sound better on a better on a better instrument, and I think that there's there's no doubt in my mind that ordinary people with a, with moderate skills immediately raise their game by being on a smaller bike that they can control relatively straightforwardly without having to go on a course, without having to watch a video about how to pick your bike up. I mean, what, it's, you know, it's like a joke. Yeah, people who know how to ride motorbikes shouldn't be having to get taught how to ride motorbikes, you know, once they've already done it. So that's where these, that's where these 250s come in. They're low. The weight is low. Uh, they're manageable. When when they fall over, you just pick them up. That's it. You, know, you don't learn a drill, or you know, or learn a method for picking them up. You don't have to get a friend to help you. And if you're crushed under it, you're they're still light enough that you can probably wriggle out, or, or partially. You know, obviously there's going to be an extreme exception, but everything's more manageable. And that's why the phrase "less is more" exists. Nobody says "more is more." I think a, a common quote that may be, um, well, maybe misquoted with you, but it is that um, you said that you've never met anyone that said, I wish I had a bigger bike on a trip. Yeah. They might wish they had a bigger bike if they have to ride from Vancouver, BC to Spokane every single day and back. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't do that on a 250. I'd be buying a GS 1200 or you know, whatever. Without a doubt. But if we're talking about true adventure motorcycling and with, you know, in, in, in the proper sense of transcontinental motorcycling in unusual places, on dirt roads, on difficult roads, where it's a given that you're camping, which means that you're tr- going off the trail at night, riding across country, encountering ditches, mud, driving into a, a, a boggy section by mistake, all of that jazz. That's, yeah, that's where you always will wish. I've, you've had a smaller motorbike. I've, I've just come back from a kind of six-week-long uh, adventure motorcycle boot camp that I run in the Spanish Pyrenees, which is not an adventure motorcycle location. It's obviously Europe, so it's a first-world holiday location. But even on that trip, and I basically know what I'm doing, and I've got a Honda CRF250L, time and time again, that bike's too big, too heavy. It's annoyingly heavy, especially once my luggage is on it. It's like pushing a small car around. You know what I mean? So, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I, want a, I want a bicycle with the power of a 250 motorcycle. That's what I want. <laughs> if that existed, I'd be on that. What do you think of the, the bikes that have been introduced now? You've got the, the BMW, the, the G310, I think it is, GS, um, the new Honda, the 250 Suzuki. What do you think of those bikes? That... That BMW 310 thing, I don't know anything about motorcycles, remember. I'm not, I can't, I can't, I'm not that guy in the bar who could just talk you through that model of that year and start, you know, I've got a lot of experience riding motorcycles around the world and I've got no experience of talking about motorcycles or really noticing 
new developments. I don't read motorcycle magazines. Um, I've seen pictures of that old BMW 310 thing. Uh, I was baffled. There's, you know, there's, there's two things happening. There's, there's motorcycles that exist that I'd like to buy. And then there's motorcycles that the manufacturers make, which I leave me literally scratching my head saying, what were they thinking? But I think the answer to that is what were they thinking is they were Austin. They weren't thinking of you. <laughs> so that's why it looks like that. Um, and the other thing I know for an absolute fact is that what I want from my long distance bike that's going to take me around the world, what I want from that almost doesn't exist. I must admit, this, this, this Honda CRF 250L is really close to perfection in my head. Uh, but even that, I would look, you know, uh, somebody in the eye at Honda and say, what were you thinking with a tank that's six litres? You know, <laughs> just you know, things like that. But um, so when I, when I look around uh, the marketplace, uh, in my mind, the... Yeah, I really do want, I want a 125 that feels as powerful as maybe a 250 did five years ago or 10 years ago. I want a 250 at the moment that feels more powerful than my Suzuki DR350 used to feel 20 years ago. Uh, the bike I'm on at the moment is returning 85 miles to the gallon. I can smash it hard and abuse it hard in the mountains on tough, rocky trails, day in, day out with full luggage on. So in the, a relatively inordinately heavy payload, and it just keeps going. It just keeps on giving. I'm never, ever scared or frightened or, or because of the size of it or the height of it or anything like that. I'm close to the ground, yet weirdly, the, the, the clearance is such that I'm never hitting anything, I'm not whacking the bash plate against anything. So it seems to be fantastic. But yeah, So um, I, would, I would say to anybody, get... Get a bike which, when you're riding it, it doesn't even occur to you that you actually even are riding a motorcycle. You don't have to think about anything because the bike is not intruding into your world. Make the bike your servant. And one of the ways of doing that is, of course, to make it as small as, you, as, you can, as you're prepared to be seen on, without a doubt. If you could sell a 125cc bike, and it was as powerful as a BMW GS, I bet you loads of people would be riding it. Because, but of course you would. There's, especially once it became known that the, that the big bikes were only as powerful as the small bikes, then it would be like, well, dude, you know, why are you on that massive, massive machine that like, looks like something from Judge Dredd? You know, well... Let's not go into that. I, I don't know if that's really the case, though, because I, I think sometimes people are buying that. I mean, for years now, they've been making these bikes bigger and bigger as adventure bikes. And if you were new to the industry, if you come in, you go, that looks really cool. The idea of riding somewhere on a motorcycle, going around the world. And now what do I need? You look at the market, and according to what you see right there is you need a great big bike that's all done up with all this stuff and you lightly covered in dust and a lot of logos on it. That's what you see as the adventure bike. So I'm not sure that, that, that everyone's so in tune to the actual bike as as much as they are into the image. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I agree with you totally. totally. If, they started, if you Google adventure bike, you get a picture of a 250cc bike with soft panniers on it. 
<laughs> you know, you get a, a picture of a, a of a tricked out massive KTM adventure or whatever. And if you if you Google the words, and I've done this many times, adventure bike rider, you get some pretty horrific images of like stormtroopers. I mean, but like normal people who just happen to be having an adventure, you get you get an image of people who are who have acquired an entire visual vocabulary that is at the very least paramilitary, however you cut it. I mean, Ted, all the you know, Saint Ted of Simon with his leather jacket and jeans, his sheepskin jacket and jeans. You don't get a picture of that if you if you Google adventure bike rider or adventure motorcyclist or adventure rider. You get you get somebody who looks like they've come to and arrest you. So, I mean, if we look at it from a manufacturer's point of view, if they're going to sell you a bike, which is what's going to happen, you're going to buy a bike and maybe the average person is going to have it for so many years and they have the choice. They can either sell you a $20,000 bike all decked out. It's a matter of dollars at this point, or they can sell you a $5,000 bike. Obviously, they want to get more money from that sale because it means it means less work per dollar returned. So it, it sort of makes you wonder, and I'll put it to you, do, do you think we've been duped? Have, we, have the manufacturers done this to try and get more money out of the single purchase? Have we followed along and built these training courses like you're saying, hey, let's, let's learn how to ride our big bike off-road. Let's learn how to handle this bike and, and make it work, do the things we want. Have we sort of been following along and is now, now are we starting to reverse that? Are people starting to say, hang on a second, that's not right? Well, the first thing I'd... I'd uh, comment on is that it's not the manufacturers who ask you to buy the biggest, most expensive bike in the range. It's your dealer in your high street. And the second thing is that certainly um, I had a conversation 48 hours ago with the head of UK motorcycles, Honda, the head of Honda UK motorcycles. I said that backwards, Nick Cambellucci. And he's taking the view now that he doesn't really care what ha- what happens at all, as long as he can increase the number of human beings in the UK that uh, take their motorcycle test and then go on to buy motorcycles. He that's that's his mission. He doesn't care even I think whether they buy a Honda because he's confident that they will one day. But he sees that the long game is not oh no, let's sell somebody a twenty thousand dollar bike instead of a $5,000 bike, the long game is we have to broaden the community. We cannot let the people who ride motorcycles continue to be only who it is today, or we will die. Well, he's referring to that bubble that's that's sort of heading for retirement of, as far as motorcycles yeah, yeah. go. There, there's that big bubble there, and the, the young people just yeah. aren't coming in. They're totally not coming in. I mean, one of the reasons that they're coming in is that it's just a, it's just an old man's hobby. Start asking youngsters to play bowls on you know in a village green or something like that. It's like the least cool thing on the face of the earth. Why do you mind? But that's why that's why the adventure segment is so appealing, isn't it, from a manufacturer's perspective? Because it sells this romantic image that that the young people look at and they think that's cool. No, they don't. I disagree strongly. You don't think that young they people are looking it. at it like that? No, absolutely not. Because what they see is. A middle-aged man, a bald middle-aged man with a like joke beard, on a bike that is so big that it obviously cost a fortune, covered in accessories and gadgets, which even if you know nothing about the industry, look like they cost something. 
you see somebody who is so blinged out with accessories, like like they, you know, you see this on the golf course, you see it on the ski slope, you see it in yachting, you see it in cycling, you see it in any world where the middle-aged man manages to get his tentacles. He accessorizes himself up to the neck, and then any outsider, forget about whether even they're a youngster, yet alone female, any outsider sees that and immediately is visually connected to the idea that this is not their world. This is not for them. Obviously, long distance around the world travel, seeing the, the wildebeest galloping across the Serengeti Desert, seeing the sun set over Cape Tribulation in Australia, having ridden there off-road, having, you know, having an evening with family in a yurt in Mongolia and eating, eating uh, just goat's testicles. This, this is the stuff of of legend and romantic travel myth. You know, sure, that side of it is appealing to a broad-minded youngster, but they're not seeing that in their high street. When somebody pulls up next to them at a set of traffic lights in Vancouver or Edmonton or Toronto or Seattle or Miami, they're not, they're not seeing travel. They're seeing enormous, ostentatious accessorizing. Is part of what you're saying and all of this you're saying is that you sort of don't condone idolizing the motorcycle as as um, part of what we're doing, but rather just reducing it to a tool? Oh, my God, you've read my mind. You've just, that's exactly what I believe. Exactly. That's why I find the kind of, the kind of custom exhaust polishing thing slightly bewilderingly tiresome. You know, I, I appreciate quality work and quality engineering and quality craftsmanship. Somebody can paint something beautifully or somebody can weld something so you can't even see that it's welded. Of course, that's fantastic. But, but the motorcycling per se is, is a red herring. And the motorcycle itself is completely a red herring. I think if you're serious about adventure motorcycling, it's the people you meet and the experiences you have that turn you into a better person at the end of it. You know, if you come, if you come back from a big round the world trip and you're the same person that you left and you're the same person that you were when you left, then I would suggest it was a waste of time. If you, if you, you know, are taken in by a family in Tanzania or you, or you, uh, you get drunk with some, policeman in Guatemala or you are helped back on your feet by somebody in a small village in Ecuador, that's, those are the experiences that will, that will hopefully change you forever and make you less inclined to, to be xenophobic, racist and fearful. Well, I think that in my mind, some of it is that people like different things, you know, so some people, some people actually like the idea of having something that looks like it's meant for some sort of adventure in which they are fully aware of and openly admit they will never tackle and have no interest in tackling. They like the gear. I mean, an example, going back to your music example, you know, you know, you get a somebody who's an amazing guitarist. You could give, they probably have a good guitar. You give them a piece of crap guitar, they can make it sound amazing. And they're not really bothered by it. I mean, if they were at somewhere and it was an impromptu thing, somebody shoved a guitar in the hand, they will make it sound great because they can play and they're into the music and the the instrument well that's sort of a side thing everything goes like this photography all of this sort of thing they yeah. they've realized that these are tools but there are the people who geek out on the stuff who are actually fascinated by the tools themselves i don't know if that's really wrong there's the road to be a collector 
I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a record collector. I, 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 collect, I collect books. I mean, there's nothing wrong. There's a difference between collecting and accessorizing. Huge difference. Austin, great to have you on. I'm sure we could talk for hours. We'll have to talk again. Okay, Chief. All the best. Bye. You can find out more about Austin Vince by visiting his website, austinvince.com. Coming up next, Graham Field cuts through a rack looking for mosul. Most of us like to customize our bike in some way, at least, to make it ours. Even combining what you use for a tank bag, hand guards, all that sort of stuff customizes it so that it becomes your bike. Well, have you ever thought of customizing your clothing? Now, here's the thing. If you order from Aerostitch, not only do you get all the sizes, 61 sizes or something like that are available, that's to ensure a proper fit. On top of that, they go one step further by having all these different options that you can have stitched in to the jacket. You can change the panels, you can add more flair, you can, you can do all kinds of modifications when you order it. But you can also customize the jacket so that you may be wearing the exact same jacket as somebody else, the same arrow stitch jacket, yours would look completely different. One of the options is called a contrasting thread option. It's a $50 option that you throw onto your jacket and you can get a jacket that is custom to yours. So no matter where you set your jacket down, it will be your jacket. Check it out. Look at their fall supplement. You can download that right online. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, definitely use the forward slash ARR because that gets you 10% off your order. Or if you're a repeat customer, it gets you free shipping in the US. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. USA Motorcycle Rentals and Tours is a rental company based near Seattle, Washington, a perfect launching point for any West Coast trip in the United States or Canada for that matter. Now, I want you to go to their website, www.tourusa.us. It's one of those .us extensions, which isn't that common, so it should be easy to remember. Tourusa.us. Because the season that's coming up is holiday season, and you're probably going to be giving somebody lists of things you want, here's what you can do with this. They've got gift certificates available. So you don't have to set your dates. You don't have to, to figure out exactly what you want. You can get someone, or at least suggest to someone, that they get you this gift certificate, and that can set you up for next year. Really inexpensive. You can get a KLR650 for as low as 110 bucks a day. That is really a good price in my mind. Anyway, grab your helmet, your, your jacket, Jump on a plane if you're going for something else. Rent a bike for a few days. Rent it for a little longer if you want. Go on a longer adventure. Oh, and also, they because they're connected with PSSOR, you can also line up a lesson before you go, which I would highly recommend. I mean, take the opportunity to t- take in a lesson, even if it's a short lesson on uh, riding adventure motorcycles. TourUSA.us. Drop by their website. Check them out. And, of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Gramfield is an author and well-known motorcycle traveler. He's written three very successful and well-reviewed books about his travels, In Search of Greener Grass, Eureka, and Different Natures. Graham lives in Bulgaria, and uh, he's a regular co-host on our ARR Raw show. Graham recently told me an interesting story about part of his trip in Iraq that's in his book Eureka, and I decided to share that with you today. So, how does the story begin? How does it begin? Well, I went into Iraq 
Um, I was in, in Turkey, in eastern Turkey, and it's quite easy. You can get a, a visa for Iraq on the board. This was 2013. So why, why were you going to Iraq? Because I was really close and I wanted to see what it was like. And uh, like I say, you can get a visa on the border. And uh, why not? What, why would you not go if you're well, that close well, to a country? It's a dangerous place, right? I mean, it, it, at that time, you know it's dangerous to go into. And that's obviously the hang up with it. Well, it's not. It wasn't as dangerous then in 2013. A year later, it got significantly worse when the whole ISIS thing started to, to rise. But in 2013, they were going through a relatively peaceful period. And also, northern Iraq is like an autumnal republic, Kurdistan, which includes a bit of uh, Iran and a bit of Turkey. So it is Iraq, but it's like the republic of the, the uh, what do they call it? I could look up the sticker in my passport, but something along like the... I should really know this. <laughs> but anyway, it's the Republic of Kurdistan inside Iraq. There's probably people screaming at the radio right now. For God's sake, don't you know what it's called? You went there. Yes, but it was three years ago. Anyway, the people were so wonderfully friendly, hospitable, generous, incredible. And, 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 and with hopes for the future, you know, we're going to – develop tourism and 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 tourists are going to come it's a beautiful country now everything is good they had such hopes for their future in 2013 it all looked good and and now it has you know all turned pretty bloody awful but i mean i couldn't when i walked into shops people would give me stuff i walk in for water and crisps no it's a present a gift for the road when i go into restaurants they would tell me their stories and then not charge me for the for the meal and just wonderful, wonderful people. But when they said, well, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to go down to uh, Erbil, which um, – is it Erbil? Oh, God, I should have researched this, shouldn't I? Anyway, so I'm going to ride around a little bit, and and then I'm going to go back because I have to – one of the conditions of entering the country was that you leave from the same border you entered in. And I said, so I'll do a little loop and then go back that way, and it's through, through Mosul. And, and and these are Iraqis telling me, you don't go through Mosul, you know. It, you will you – will be killed. You that, that's, are what the, that's what the people that live there are telling you. This is it. They said, you will die. You are too insignificant to be protected and you are too significant to get through without being, you know, is a place, it's suicide bombings and, and, and burning pit of hell. You will die if you go through most. And I can't, you know, you always hear this. I was listening to uh, Spencer James on your on your show recently, and he was saying, you know, everybody warns you about the next country and everything, and don't go here and don't go that. And so, but then again, these were Iraqis talking about their own country, telling me not to go there. Anyway, I got um, as far as I was. But, well, also, it, it sounds really, I mean, they're, they're not just saying that, you know, don't go there. They're telling you there's no chance you're going to survive. That's pretty major. That's a real dire warning. It was quite a significant warning, and I did take it on board to a degree. But at the same time, because of the way the borders of Kurdistan and Iraq go, I would have gone in a straight line for about 27 kilometers. It would have been 27 kilometers from when I left Kurdistan, gone through Mosul, and come out the other side of Kurdistan, still in Iraq, but out of the data. I thought, in 27 kilometers, really, you know, I'm sure I'll be in and out before they say, burn the hippie. So I <laughs> what didn't can happen? Think, what could possibly go wrong? And um, so it, it, it was quite significant. I was, like I say, I had all this on board, and I, and I was leaving the, the city I'd stayed in the night before, and and was heading up, going, going to Turkey. I was going to go back to Turkey that day. And I'm heading north towards Mosul, as opposed to 
south towards Baghdad. You've decided to completely ignore what everyone's told you, what, what you're hearing, you're, you're warned, you're not going to make it, you're going to completely ignore them, you're not going to prepare otherwise, you're just going to ride across. Um, I did put my money belt on. <laughs> I took precautions. <laughs> no, I was I was going to intrepidly head in the direction that I had been warned not to go and see what would occur. Okay, so and you had a bit of a as, game plan. You thought you'd poke your nose in and see what it's like and maybe you could always turn around and head back. The fact is, I am heading north to Turkey. That is the direction I have to go. Most soldiers happens to be in my way. and 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 so... I'm, I'm heading north, you know, Let, let's see what happens. And it's a, a good road. And slowly, and wherever you are, having drove, driven a truck for 17 years, I kind of feel an affinity with truck drivers. And whenever there's trucks on the road, they're, you know, the lifeblood of, of a country. And, and also, I thought, you know, it may be a burning hit pit of hell, but life must go on. Surely shops are open, people must need to dine they need to eat they so how bad can it really be anyways i'm slowly heading north and it is barren barren desert there is nothing on this road and slowly there are less and less trucks as well and 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 the trucks give me hope when i'm on a if i'm on an empty road in in the outback that's one thing but on an empty road going to somewhere where i would more not to go when there's not even trucks I was getting a little wary and there were regularly uh, there were military checkpoints and um, where, where are you going? And I say, oh, well, at first I just say, oh, you know, north or Mosul. And they'd look at me like you bloody idiot. Um, but they'd let me go. And as I got there was one point where there was a sign written in, in you know, the Iraqi uh, script I couldn't read and most people seemed to be pulling off the mo- off the highway and, and taking this slip road and there was even a queue of traffic I was like well I'm not going there it's a queue of traffic and after I made that decision then the road was empty and there was a bridge I crossed this bridge and I had to be checked to go across the bridge and they said oh where are you going and uh, I said oh just north and again they just looked at me there's no law against it but why on earth are you going there? They don't get an awful lot of adventure motorcyclists on that road, you can tell. And then I'm thinking, well, that bridge was probably, that river I've just crossed is probably a border. I would imagine I am now sort of in Mosul. So 27 kilometers to go. I'll be back in the Kurdistan Republic and everything will be fine. So, so at this point, are you thinking that you're still okay? Is it not sort of sinking in that, that you're the only one out there, that you're getting these looks from the guards well, there are only guards. No, there isn't anything else out there. And now I'm going to be heading for a city pretty soon. Oh, there was a bunch of burning smoke on the horizon, a bunch of smoke on the horizon. I thought, ooh, what's that? Is that a, a bombing or a, or a car fire or something? And someone was just burning tires on the side of the road. But but you are on edge. I mean, every possible thing you're waiting for, a, for an invisible line stretched across the road that's going to take your neck off when you're right off. But... <laughs> But, but then before any of that came, there was a massive roadblock and there were armored cars, there were concrete barriers, there were sandbags and there were military like I'd never seen before. Absolutely tooled up terminators. They were just with with daggers and guns and protection and bulletproof stuff and helmets and X-ray glasses. And I don't know what. And they stopped me. And at that point, I did realize that I had underestimated the situation. (laughs) And they said, what are you doing here? 
where are you going? And at this point, I thought, well, I'm in Mosul now. So at that point, I said, oh, I'm just going to Turkey. And um, they, were, they were just, it was just incredulous. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. And this man, this very large man who was not um, protected with any kind of uh, bulletproof <laughs> armor or, or weapons, but was incredibly decorated with rank, came out of his little air-conditioned office and said, where are you going? And I said, well, I was just going, it's going into Mosul. He said, you are not going to Mosul. Let me see your visa. And I said, it's here. He said, this is a visa for Kurdistan. You need a visa for Iraq. And I said, okay. Um, he said, you will have to turn around. At that point, I wasn't about to argue because I did realize, you know, <laughs> actually, I, I've seen enough now and I'm ready to find another route. So, but these guys, these huge military guys were so friendly, smiley, couldn't just taking photos of me, taking photos on their phone, all wanting to shake my hand. And uh, <laughs> I mean, and even the big general dude got my camera and took a photograph of us all together. Unfortunately, it was on a really prolonged shutter speed. So all these photos are really overexposed. But it was it was it was a, an exciting little moment. At that point, I was very, very happy to do a U-turn. But so now I have got to find I've been turned around going south, but I do have to find a way to go north. So I decided to take this little diversion. And that's that's when it got super scary. I don't mind dealing with armed police, armed military. You know who you're dealing with. And, and you know, they know their enemy and their enemy is not me. Now, there are plainclothes people, unshaven men with automatic weapons and two-way radios. And at one junction, I had two, two of them stopped me. Where are you going? I said, I'm trying to, uh, trying to get back to Turkey. Said, you don't go this way. Okay, right. Well, I've come from the south. I'm not going that way. I've been turned around from the north. I'm now trying to head east. There is, I'm running out of options here. So I turned around and there was this little roundabout. And I thought, well, if I can go north here, I can run parallel with the road that was blocked and maybe miss Mosul. And I've got, I keep a voice recorder in my, in my tank box. And I was talking into my voice recorder. Uh, I'm saying, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do now. I've been turned around several times. I'm running out of options. And at that point, another man, another armed, plainclothes man with an automatic weapon came out in front of me. And I didn't get a chance to turn off my voice recorder. And he said, uh, where you go? Hello, hello, where are you? I'm going to Gohok. Gohok. Gohok? Gohok, yes. And I said, uh, Turkey, I'm going to Turkey. And he said, where are you from? And I said, England, uh, from England. He said, on this? And he points at my bike and I said, yeah, yeah, on this. And he said, welcome to Iraq. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome to Iraq. Thank you. And uh, he pointed me off in this direction. And when I get back to write my books, I have three things. I have my diary for the for the notes. I have my photographs to remind me of the train and I have my voice recorder because it's not just what I'm saying in the voice recorder. It's the way I'm saying it, whether I'm bored, whether I'm elated, whether I'm tired. And when I listen to that now and I hear the assertion in his voice and I hear the trepidation in my voice and when I hear him say, welcome to Iraq, it just makes me goose pimply still. <laughs> and this is, I think, one of the advantages of traveling overland from your countries. You slowly 
immerse yourself in this. If I'd have come straight out of my bedroom in England and found myself in Iraq, that would have been quite a culture shock. But I, this was becoming my norm. This was my day now. And you take it in your stride. Looking back, it seems outrageous. But at the time, you just deal with it because that's what's been happening to you on a, on a, on a slow basis. So, so then the bloody road ended. And um, there's nothing else to do except go off road through these bits of barbed wire. <laughs> I'm going through the city of hell. There's, there's probably landmines. Who knows what's out there? And I've chosen this point to do some off road riding. As soon as you but say I, you're having to go through barbed wire, I mean, all the, all the alarm bells are going off to me. <laughs> but there's no more choice. There is no more choice. Well, what do you mean a road I, ends? What does it do? It just ends, it comes to a concrete it just, barrier? It's just dug up. Well, it's just dug up. And so I think there's some houses beyond the dug up bit. So if I go through this field, I can get back. And, and I did. And then I squeezed through some more barbed wire. The road got better. Then there were sunflowers, which were just so like, ah, sunflowers. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I was back. Then the Kurdistan flag started flying. I'm back in Kurdistan. Everything is good. I'm fine. And slowly I'm going back up uh, towards the reservoir of what's it called? Dohuk, I think. And then up towards the Turkish border. And everything's just happy and lovely and fine again. But it was just a predicament of... I was listening to your show earlier and you're saying, you know, everything's fine. Then you have a fall and break a limb and how everything just suddenly turns to disaster. Well, it didn't turn to disaster, but you see how it suddenly could, you mm. know. Was that the border you crossed? Well, I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know what they were looking for. It wasn't me, but there was... There was, you know, like I say, and that's the problem when you're dealing with armed people who aren't uniformed. You don't know what you're dealing with. And um, but they weren't looking for money and they weren't looking for me. And um, I just carried on on my way. I just couldn't go in a, a few times in the direction I wanted to because that was their road and they didn't want me on it. <laughs> what do you take from this now looking back on it? Well, several things, actually. When I think of those military people, those lovely, smiley blokes with all their weapons and all their protection, and then a year later when Mosul was, was taken by ISIS, and, and they said, you know, on the radio reports, that the, you know, the military were running scared. These huge blokes who were just terminators, well, what on earth were they faced with that were running scared? Are they still around, you know? They had pictures of their kids on their phone just like the rest of us you know and um so it makes it very real for me it's not just another news report it's somewhere that i went people who i saw and uh, with with lives and families and hopes for the future tourism and stuff like that so it does make it very real for me what else do i take from it i it's hard to say I, I, people would listen to think well you're a bloody idiot for going there you don't know, man. You weren't there. It, it wasn't like that. It was, it was, it was an innocent trip. I was forewarned, and I was just wanting to see what it was like. And it was not a burning pit of hell. I could imagine it would turn into one pretty quickly, but it was <laughs> for me. It was exhilarating, and I love exhilarating experiences. I don't know how close to death I am. I was. Or am for that matter, <laughs> uh, but I just um, it, it for me that puts the adventure in adventure biking. I that is going into a country, pushing the boundaries, pushing the limits, 
meeting and experiencing stuff firsthand. I didn't go off that morning to be to be confronted by armed people. But at the end of the day, you just um, you're all the richer for the experience. When you're riding away, do you think in your head, well, that's going to make a good part in the book? You know, you do not go into that. I did not go into that thing at all. You know, what we need is a compelling chapter. (laughs) (laughs) So what I'll do is I'll put myself in in harm's way. I'll go up and and get shot at, possibly, just to uh, add some to the book. Yesterday was boring. It was a chapter about me muesli breakfast. What I need is some blood. (laughs) I met a guy on a ferry uh, recently. I was crossing uh, the channel to come back here to Bulgaria. And uh, he'd read the book and he said, in the next book, we need more sex, we need violence, and we need a chase. And I said, maybe I could combine all three. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that for, was he referring to a future book or was he referring to this one? Because this, one, this one's in Eureka, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, he was referring to the future book. He said, in the next book, we need, we need more sex, we need sex, we need a chase, and we need violence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is there anything else you take from that trip, from that experience? Oh, I don't know. Um, It's a story I do love to tell when I do my presentations. Um, Is there anything else? I don't think there's – what else do I take from it? I mean, don't go into war zones. But I suppose as well, no one had told me. I hadn't looked. I hadn't – well, I'd say no one had told me. No one in the West had said, don't go there. It was only the locals who had said, don't go there. And so – you listen to the locals to a degree. I don't know. That book, my, my favorite all-time book, is One Man Caravan by Robert Fulcrum Jr. And he did a trip in the 1920s. And he was the same in the Middle East and uh, and saying, you know, people from one village would say, don't go to the next village. They're all savages. And they said, well, have you been there? And they said, well, well no. And when he got to the next village, he said, you came from that village? They're all savages. And so there is always that element, whether it's village to village or country to country or continent to continent everybody has bad things to say about the next place which they haven't necessarily been to it's all hearsay okay in this occasion they were right but But if you listen to everyone who gave you warnings about the the neighboring state province country you'd probably be paralyzed you would the same with everything whether you're talking about everything you should need for preparation everything you should need for camping everything you should need for your bike You know, you can get paralyzed on every aspect of preparation, whether it's a bike trip or anything else. You know, we are so bombarded with with information and and different opinions now. It's very hard to know what to do. But I, you know, I think if you just plod on cautiously, (laughs) I may retract this statement in the future. (laughs) Or you may not get a chance to. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have it on my headstone. He wishes to retract that statement. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say a lot of it is just hyperbole when people are talking about areas being so super dangerous, etc.? You think that you should poke your nose in and have a look around? I, I, in that particular situation, it was something I wanted to do. I, I still find it incomprehensible. You know, you I, when you see newsreels of these press people doing their stuff with their bulletproof vests reporting from a war zone I, I i just find it intriguing how do they get there when they land in the airport are they just 
whisked away in special bulletproof press vans? Do they stay in their bomb-proof hotels and do their press reports? Life must still go on. There has to be some element of normality. And I guess that's what I was expecting to some degree. I wanted to witness what it was like on the other side of a notorious border. And I only got as far as the border and realized that I haven't got press written on me. <laughs> and, uh, and I may write about it in some way until the stories report firsthand what I saw. But at the same time, I'm not... Um, like I said, too insignificant to be reported, uh, to be protected, and uh, and uh, too significant to uh, to get away with it. <laughs> what I did do the rest of that day, having gone back into Turkey, I then wrote because it was hot and barren. It was forty degrees. It was scorching hot. That was one of the things the soldiers were making fun of me because they were saying, you know, look how overdressed you are. I said, me? Look at you <laughs> with, all your, with all your armory. <laughs> and, and as I slowly moved north up into Turkey, this beautiful valley that I was riding along the side of a river and, and green and colour came back to the landscape. And I ended up wild camping that night at the side of a river. And, and generally when I wild camp, I can be a little on edge because, you know, you're on your own, you're a little vulnerable, you know, on the side of your, inside your tent, zipped up in your sleeping bag. And after what I'd been through that day, on this, in, the, in the little valley at the side of a river with a few cows wandering around, I, I felt bulletproof, you know. There's nothing that's going to scare me tonight not after what I've been through. <laughs> Does that experience make you braver or more comfortable you know i mean i don't mean in a heroic sense but does it make you more comfortable sort of raise your threshold that you have for fear or do you just look at it as well okay i got lucky and that was really cool i think momentarily it does i think when you have something like that you can feel a little invincible because what you've been through whatever it is i mean there, i did uh, uh, the iron butt challenge recently and did 1200 miles in 24 hours and i, I did it pretty responsibly i think i, I, I read all, all the notes and uh, and i and, and i did it uh, in a way which, which suited me and i covered the mileage and it was it was done quite well but afterwards i was like, i've done 1200 miles in 24 hours and i did feel like this this sense of well i can do anything now i'm super strong you know and i think it lasts really like, probably the most dangerous feeling in the world on a motorbike is feeling invincible <laughs> well it, but, you know i often think of this when people talk about going to countries for instance you, you go into a country well even just like that where you're told that it's really dangerous and people will go in and say i had a fantastic time i had a, you know the the country was wonderful and and I'm wondering if sometimes we don't look at things like it's just like, you know, that that episode you're referring to about the, the accident with a broken leg. Everything's great until something goes wrong. And just because you made it through an area that was really dangerous or did a really tricky maneuver, or rode through somewhere and managed it that one time, it doesn't mean it's necessarily repeatable or applicable to everyone. Exactly. And I mean, it's like people who have, you know, when you when you're in sort of like places like Kazakhstan or something and you'll meet someone coming the other way and they'll say how awful the road is and or you've been warned about a terrible border or whatever. And it's a breeze for you. What is a problem for one person is is not necessarily a problem for the next, whereas equally something, you know, that 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 everybody else got through effortlessly becomes a major chore or hassle for you. So. 
It, 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 and, and I think that is that, that epitomizes travel. It's about your experience at the time. It's it's not about anything you've read or anything you could possibly foresee. You what you see as you travel through the country or through the the state or the province at that time is your first hand witness account and and that's what you're seeing it's not necessarily what anybody else has seen and i think that's what's so pure and honest about travel it's 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 one person's experience on that day so when you travel graham do you, do you have to ch- sort of change your your demeanor do you sort of um give over easier you know become more submissive as you you're going into situations uh, I, I think so. I don't think I'm ever a, appear as a threat to anybody. Firstly, I'm traveling solo, so you're not threatening in, in a respect where there's a, a whole gang of you turning up. And yeah, I always wear a smile. Always. I am never. How can you possibly win with officials who speak the language, who know the laws, who do it day in, day out, when you've suddenly found yourself in a situation where you don't speak the language, you don't know the customs, you don't understand the rituals? What's the point in being a dick about it? You might as well just go with the flow, have a smile, be the smiling fool and get yourself out of that situation as quickly as you can. Because trying to be a sort of, you can't treat me like this, isn't going to get you anywhere. <laughs> so in a way, it's the price of admission. Yeah, yeah. You've got to be humble. Why would you not? You're in someone else's country. Yeah, I would. I always, the smile and, and congeniality will get you out of a situation better. Well, that and a, and a few crisp $20 bills will get you out of a situation far better than stamping your feet and throwing your toys out of the pram. Graham Field lives in Bulgaria, and uh, if you want to see more of what he's doing, actually, if you, you want to see his books, you can get them at his website, www.gramfield.co.uk. Matter of fact, you, you should go and look at it because I think you can still get his box set. I'm pretty sure you can. So go to his website, and if, if you haven't got his books, you can get all three books together in a box set. The box is his pannier. It's actually his pannier, like the, a copy of his pannier made into the box that houses the book. Very cool. you got to go see it. www.gramfield.co.uk. And uh, I imagine, boy, if you get an order in soon, you might even be able to get it for Christmas for somebody. Here's an idea for you. BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. 
Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, if you like what we're doing, you'd like to help us out, consider dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the donate button. Anything $10 or more will get you one of our stickers sent back at you, and maybe even more. Well, I guess that's it. It wraps it up. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike, if you can, if it's not snowing for you. I mean, hopefully it's not snowing for you. If not, well, I guess you'll just have to go maybe sit on it in the garage or the shed. My name's Jim Martin. See you next week. Oh, wait, wait, before you go. Hang on, there's one more thing. If you're on Facebook, like, who isn't on Facebook? And you haven't come by our, our uh, Facebook page yet, drop by our Facebook page. Just search for Adventure Rider Radio. You probably have your phone in your hand right now. You're probably looking at Facebook. Drop by our page, like our Facebook page. And don't forget, we have a separate page for Raw as well. And that is a separate show. Forgot to mention that as well. ARR Raw, separate show that we do, Roundtable Talks. Um, Graham Field, who you just listened to, he's on there. We do it once a month. And remember, you have to subscribe to that separately. It's a different show. It's, of course, free. You can listen to it for free, but you need to subscribe separately. Hi, this is Mary McGee. And you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 